Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about Thucydides. Here in Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bobinger. With me on the line from Istanbul is my co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? Hey, Charles. Uh, this week, Istanbul uh, was not its typical sunny, lovely self, but there was actually a apocalyptic Truly spectacularly apocalyptic rain um, that, uh, I, I, as I walk through the neighborhood every day, the the streets are literally covered in glass from windows having been shattered. And, wow! You know, yeah, it was, it was extraordinary. So it's not. Uh, don't feel don't feel so resentful for the good weather I've been enjoying these last. No, summer. I we. Um... I was just telling you before we, we started recording that my father was in town last weekend and we went to see Dunkirk at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum IMAX, which, by the way, is the way to see that movie because of the way that its its shots are framed with broad expanses of the sea and the and the the beach. That is a movie you really want to see in IMAX. And I say that rarely because I almost never think a movie should be seen in anything we have to go out of your way to because it's usually not that big a difference. But it was here. But after the movie... We wandered around the museum because it's the Air and Space Museum. It's fantastic. It's great. And while we were there, this torrential downpour started out of nowhere. And they have these big glass windows in the ceiling so you can see up into the sky. And you oh, would uh, just hear the, the, the torrential downpour on those windows. It was – It was. I mean, I was going to say that we had a frightening apocalyptic rain too, but it did not shatter the glass we were standing under, thankfully. So I well, guess it wasn't uh, that bad. Yeah, it was it was hail actually the chat. Oh, oh okay, it was, that'll do it. There, there you go. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, for those of you who haven't been able to hear it in my voice just yet, um, I am getting over a very sore throat. Uh, if this had been yesterday, I wouldn't have been able to record the podcast. Uh, hopefully, I'll be fast enough on the mute button every time I cough. Uh, but if you find that annoying, just tell yourself that I'm saying something obscene and bleeping it out every time that happens. <laughs> So, all right. So for this week, we uh, we were we originally had a slightly different topic we were discussing, but events in the news um, pressed us towards uh, something that is a little bit closer to the kind of thing that we're uh, always. It was just a perfect opportunity for the kind of thing we always want to talk about, which is last week we mentioned uh, Thucydides as a um, possession for all time, uh, and uh, as, you know when, when we're when we're doing this podcast, we want to have discussions that could be applicable in a variety of situations based on things that are happening now. We don't want this to be something that is completely irrelevant after the next election cycle, for instance, which is something that I noticed a few election cycles back that I would um, read like crazy. All of the every little update, every little thing in the 2008 campaign was the one where I remember this happening. Read every little update, and then the day after the election, you sort of realize that all of that no longer matters. Every little campaign misstep, every little thing that you were reading, every little poll you looked at was totally irrelevant the day after the campaign. Um, to some extent, things that people say during the campaign, I mean, those, those things matter, but as a percentage of what you're reading, maybe 90% of it goes out the window and no longer has any relevance for your life. It's just something you do because you're obsessively reading it. And so we want a podcast here where... After the next election, after the next bill passes or doesn't pass, you still have something you can bring to the bill after that or the election cycle after that. And so here we have 
an example of uh, the principle that bad procedures tend to result in bad laws. That's uh, we, we are kind of big on following procedure and institutions on this show precisely because when you wander off into uncharted territory and do weird things for, for reasons of expediency, you end up with the bills they were voting on in the Senate this week. Um, David, was the, uh, were you able to follow this live? It was 1.30 in the morning uh, here in D.C. as I was breathlessly checking Twitter for updates on whether John McCain was putting his thumbs up or down, whether people who were talking to him looked happy or unhappy. Uh, what, so that would have been, what, 8 in the morning in Istanbul? Yeah, so I couldn't uh, really sleep that night because I was, um, I mean, in part because of the stress of uh, everything going up into that vote. It was just such a, um, it's so, it just frustrating. But yeah, I woke up um, and was, you know, eating and looking at the news and, and anyway, I wasn't watching it, but I got the alert basically in, re in real time. And so that was extraordinary, extraordinary moment. Yeah, I was I was anxiously refreshing Twitter feeds of people who were in the room saying, oh, now McCain is talking to the Democrats and he's laughing. Oh, now he's talking to Pence and Pence has surrounded him. And, oh, maybe now we should worry about whether Murkowski's the one who might fold. And that was just absolutely agonizing. And um, something I actually would hold a bit of a grudge towards John McCain for, because as he walked in, uh, the press were asking him, how he was going to vote and he sort of smiled and said wait for the show uh and then he did put on a show this is yeah that, that is an interesting part of it uh, because in the preceding week um there was so much vile just hatred spewing at mccain from the left um especially i mean i will certainly not forget uh paul krugman's <laughs> op-ed uh you know, the sanctimony of the, you know, the sin and sanctimony of Republican moderates, I think was the name. What I loved the most about that was that it was his Friday morning op-ed, and he'd written it and sent it in before McCain voted no on the final bill. Exactly. And there was, a, I mean, one paragraph in particular where he says, you know, I am addressing McCain first because he is, you know, such a spectacular hypocrite. It's like this. <laughs> this has not aged well. No, it did not. It did not age well. Just a few hours later, yeah. I think. So I didn't. I, I saw that it had that that post of his had gone that a column had gone up um, before the vote or around that time because the New York Times puts them up very early. Um, but I didn't read it until the next morning. And when I read it the next morning, there were a couple of sentences thrown in that said, "And the vote last night doesn't change that," which yeah. did. Speak a bit to um, uh, to how firmly he was said in that. Now, as somebody who's followed Paul Krugman's blog for a long time, um, he does have some good overall points about Republican moderates, but it was particularly poor timing on that column, uh, right. where it really was interesting. And uh, so, part of what we wanted to talk about this week is the fact that um, how do you interpret? how somebody votes on something and whether this is, Oh good. He made the right decision. Oh, he did something bad. Um, when you want, what, what, like there are so many things that go into a vote that trying to pull out whether you think he was right or wrong to vote a certain way is itself an interesting discussion because we got four different votes about the healthcare bill this week from John McCain specifically 
all of which could lead you in totally different directions. Uh, first, we had the procedural vote that he so dramatically came back onto the Senate floor, and he gave the he he voted yes on the motion to proceed, and he was the decisive vote when he did so, meaning that it was fifty-one fifty with Pence breaking the tie. If he had changed his vote, they would not have proceeded on the bill. Uh, and then he gave this speech on the floor of the Senate about how they needed to return to regular order, about how all of the things that have been going on were too partisan and too mean, and all of these things that made no sense in light of the vote that he had just cast. And so a lot of people were calling him hypocrites for that. And then um, some people were saying it's not hypocritical because he just voted on the motion to proceed, which is not the bill itself. And even though he said he would not vote for the bill itself, voting on a motion to proceed, people were split on whether it is whether the sort of results-based thinking of because he voted yes, the motion to proceed happens and the bill stays alive, versus the process-oriented people who say you're supposed to vote on this procedural motion because that's sort of what you're here for, is to move things along and get it to that final yay or nay vote. Um, and then this became uh, further muddied a few hours later when they had, I think the first vote was the BCRA plus Cruz Amendment, where they basically took their bill, added $100 billion extra dollars to Medicaid, despite cutting $700 billion to Medicaid. It hadn't been scored by the CBO, which is sort of a, you know, don't do that based on procedure. And then that one went down, 43 votes to 57, but McCain was not one of the no votes on that, which was very bizarre because you had this period where people were saying, oh, his procedural vote, let's make excuses for it, let's talk instead about the great speech he gave. And then this other group of people that said the speech he gave is meaningless if he voted yes on the motion to proceed. And then later, and then and then after this argument had already been happening for a few hours, he votes yes on this other terrible bill. And that seemed questionable. But then the next day, they had a repeal-only bill, which he voted against. And then later in the week, they had the skinny repeal, which he was the decisive vote no for, which finally killed the process that was happening. And so we could... Um, like we, we, you can go through every one of those four votes and argue about it in a different way. His vote for the BCRA plus Cruz Amendment, you can say, well, he knew his vote wasn't going to be decisive because it was so unpopular it lost by seven votes. If it's going to lose by seven votes, he can do whatever, and you know the result does. We know the result is going to be the same. I find that questionable, and I think that you shouldn't be voting on major things like this that haven't been scored by the CBO. With a repeal-only one, it was a little bit closer. Uh, and then, of course, on the one where his result was decisive, for the skinny repeal, he voted no and kept us all waiting very late at night for that. <laughs> um, David, what do you think about those four votes and how the procedure versus result of them stacks up? Yeah, I think um, I mean, this is a... It's a it's a tough thing to approach. It's a tough topic to approach um, because there really is a lot of. I mean, to talk about it uh, very clearly and really cast light on it, you have to have a lot of specialized knowledge yes. about parliamentary procedure, like what regular what order it. is, um, like what regular order is. Um, I mean, even when we get to the, when we really got down to the wire with the skinny repeal, uh, you know, a huge part of the debate 
uh, among the senators was the issue of the of what would happen in conference with the House, right? So I mean, there there is so much particular detail to how the sausage making actually functions uh, that you know, as you I mean, you are very you are totally right to say like we have these four different votes and they all seem to say different things, uh, slightly different. Um, I mean, you basically have, you know, two no votes and two yes votes. So like those are obviously more similar to each other, but you know, two, two fundamentally different things and four slightly different things, um, that these four votes represent, but you know, then to really, um, talk expertly about it, you know, requires, um, uh, you know, an incredibly granular degree of knowledge um, that kind of gets back to the horse race stuff that you yeah. mentioned uh, introducing this, that, you know, for people who are politically inclined and perhaps detail oriented and have too much time on their hands, oh, yes. you know, like this kind of information access becomes um, addictive and information seeking becomes addictive, but then it's like, well, after the process ends, you know, how much space do you really want to like devote in your brain to like knowing those things? But, um, that being said, I mean, I think the real standout vote is his vote in favor of, um, Braca plus Cruz. That one seems kind of incomprehensible other than, to the extent that he was trying to um, basically maybe trying to like trick McConnell into thinking he would vote for the skinny vote. Yeah, I mean, the question I is don't... when he knew, you know, when he knew he was going to vote against skinny repeal. And one of the things that I, one of the um, claims or suggestions or theories um, that I find most persuasive is that as skinny repeal was coming down the pike, um, you know, you had this, utterly farcical moment where, um, you know, was it Graham, Portman, and Johnson? Were those yeah. the three oh, well, senators? McCain, Graham, and Johnson did the uh, did the speech where they said, we don't want this to become law at the press conference. Well, right, where they said, we needed an assurance from Speaker Ryan that if we pass this law, the House will not pass it. Yeah. Like, so that we're going to vote yes or no on this law. And we'll vote yes only on the condition that the law not, that the bill not become law. Um, and, you know, it seems plausible that um, if things had been different leading up to that point, you may not have had the last straw where McCain says, oh, no, this is just, we can't, we can't do it this way. Um, it could have, which is to say he may have made up his mind as late as then. Um, but it certainly seems to be that, um, you know, he really meant it the whole time that I'm going to open the, you know, I'm going to fall in line to open the process and have this discussion and deliberate in public for the American people to to witness, to show, to see myself as well as to watch alongside my fellow Americans, the actions of the senators and to see what they do 
given this opportunity. And then when it got to the end and um, this just in just incredible, absurd uh, line of, you know, we'll only pass it if it doesn't become law um, was the was the final straw that he said, you know, this is just an embarrassment to the to the body, yeah. embarrassment to the Senate. Um, but one thing that, you know, one thing that I found, it, it slowly crept up on me, but the you know, thing I found unseemly um, and sort of silly about the way that um, Democrats and liberals were unloading on McCain was the idea that, like, you know, we love you and we call you Maverick and then you vote against us. You know, then you vote for this, you know, this like heartless conservative gutting of the, of American healthcare. It's like, he is in fact a conservative. Yes. <laughs> he, he in fact opposes, uh, you know, on principle, smaller government is better for him. Like that is what he believes. That's, that is, I mean, him having integrity is him pursuing an you know, approach that wherever possible removes government from our society, you know, if it can function without, if, if the society can function without it. Um, and so, you know, the idea that he was, that he would be hypocritical for supporting repeal, you know, because he should be a maverick and he should fuck his party, uh, was crazy to begin with. And you know, at some point it occurred to me that it was sort of like, um, <laughs> sort of like if you're on a date and, you know, you tell the other person they're, they're attractive and then you expect them to sleep with you just because you gave them a compliment. Mm. It's like, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, he's not. Wait, is that what I'm not... doing wrong? <laughs> so, you know, the, uh, the liberal position on this, on the fundamental issue of McCain's approach to, um, you know, to preserving the ACA or removing it and replacing it, it it's certainly, it, it, there's no way in which he's hypocritical for wanting to repeal and replace the bill. Um, and of course it, it appears that even if in a somewhat grandiose and showboaty way, um, he, you know, the issue here is that he was willing to go against what he wanted, which is the, repeal of the bill and the replacement with something better. You know, he was willing to go against that because of his commitment to the process and the way in which a, you know, a success of moving towards conference with the house, um, would be a travesty, um, of deliberation where the Senate would have completely given up its role as a deliberative body. Um, you know, the saucer that cools the coffee. If, uh, you know, if he had moved along just to, you know, move, if he had moved the bill along just to get along with the rest of the conference. Of course, now, okay, stop here because we've been talking McCain about, we're talking about McCain a lot, but it has to be, we have to re, you know, reaffirm here that the real, um, real praiseworthy Republicans here are, uh, Murkowski and, and Collins. Collins who, yeah, absolutely. You know, who had, who had a public position from the beginning that was, consistent and clear and principled um, as moderate conservatives 
that they were unwilling to um, go through this process. And you know, they they made their signal right from the beginning, and they took a huge amount of flack for it. So they are they are obviously the real um, praiseworthy actors here uh, for going against their party and going against the president and suffering a lot of abuse for it. And you know, holding the you know, going to you were talking about Gun, Dunkirk. You know, they're the uh, they're like the loyal French rear guard who you know fought the Nazis to the death. Not not to say that <laughs> I know Nazis. you're digging yourself so deep with this comparison. <laughs> oh no! Right. No, the ones who, who who held their stations and held their ground um, to the very end, and then you know McCain was the Tom Hardy coming around and doing some cool stuff yeah. and getting the applause uh, for showing off even though there were others who were there before him. Yeah, it's the, I assume you heard about how um, Interior Secretary Zinke, uh, or Zinke, I don't actually know how he pronounces it, uh, because usually people don't talk about the Secretary of the Interior, but uh, he made some news because after one of those bills, but before the final one, he called the other Alaskan senator's office, and apparently Murkowski's as well, but it was the other uh, Alaskan senator who brought this up Don't in the worry. news. Yeah, yeah um, he, uh, he called and basically threatened Alaska. So the Interior Department's involved with a lot of oil drilling and stuff in Alaska, and... You know, if you don't vote with us, you may start finding problems with the stuff you need to do, which I've, people have been discussing this a bit because it demonstrates how incompetent Trump is. Um, there's, it's it, people because we're all assuming that Trump gave the okay on that, um, and uh, yeah, um, yeah. And, and the the problem is that. That, that betrays a lot of knowledge of institutions, a lot of knowledge of how to deal with other human beings, uh, because the immediate response to this was that Murkowski was in charge of a committee that oversees a lot of important stuff for the Interior Department, and suddenly this hearing for something got postponed indefinitely, although she said that wasn't why. Uh, <laughs> but it, it turns out that if you're the chair of a committee related to a department, you have more power than that department head often does. So right. you have to tread carefully and somehow uh, trying to bully her ineffectively was not able to convince her to change her vote. Yeah. And this is, you know, when we're talking about, um, we're talking about process and again, process and good faith are inextricably linked here where, you know, we're trying to identify, you know, it, you know, I said a minute ago that McCain is honestly, genuinely committed to removing government from American life where it can be removed. I mean, he is a conservative. Um, and you can disagree with that, but still respect that that's something that he pursues in good faith. He demonstrated his good faith by killing the process in such dramatic fashion. Um, but, you know, for these other Republicans who have not so conspicuously demonstrated their good faith, how do we know, you know, whether they have it? And then how do we know, you know, without seeming, um, you know, how do we demonstrate to ourselves in a, um, 
in a convincing way that other Republicans don't have that good faith. And this, you know, a lot of the stuff that's coming out of the White House um, really just seems impossible to interpret in any way other than a lack of good faith. Where, um, I mean, whether you, you were talking about this particular threat and that it you know, displays amateurism more than anything else. Um, but, I mean, the idea that the president would, well, would allow, let's again, you know, yeah. be as, as skeptical as possible here and not jump to conclusions, would allow one of his cabinet secretaries to attempt to threaten an entire state uh, to force this process along just betrays a sense of the role, uh, you know, his view of the role of government, um, which is basically a shell for him and his allies' interests to empower themselves, as opposed to, um, you know, what it, what it should be, which is a set of institutions that serve the public interest. Um, you know, the public interest being the, you know, I mean, the, one of the greatest bits of, um, one of the greatest articulations of, of the American idea, Federalist 10, of this plural society that constantly reforms interests because of the vast diversity of this great republic. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, it is, it's just it's a, it's just so terrible that it's a combination of rank stupidity to to have you know Zinke threaten basically threaten his boss, you know, by going after Murkowski, um, and it's that rank stupidity combined with um, the display of you know what he thinks the U.S. government is, which is you know an instrument that he can grasp to you know, empower his friends and punish his enemies. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to approach. I mean, it's, it's tough to, to just be alive right now and, and be aware of these issues um, and retain, you know, faith that we can go back to a political, um, you know, a way of engaging politically with people who have different views and, give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, to trust that they might have different ideas about how things should work. You know, the, the, the process, they have different ideas for how things should work, um, different results that the, and goals that they want to pursue, but that they share confidence in the process to allow for a back and forth and some kind of, um, mechanism for achieving compromise between these different visions of how government should deliver results, but also have confidence that those results and the point of those results is to deliver for the people, you know, for the American people and, and all their diversity. Yeah. I mean, in one of these is like, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, help you uh, recover from your from your cold, and I'll continue to talk for a bit. You know, another one of these examples is the the Tillerson, the news coming out of the State Department, 
about um, the process of reform that Tillerson is running, where, you know, you can have an open mind and acknowledge that uh, anyone who knows anything about Washington knows that the, you know, the quote unquote interagency, you know, the federal government is vast and coordinating the parts of that great machine is very difficult and that it makes sense to have periodic comprehensive reviews of what various parts of the bureaucracy are doing and what the point of having them uh, is and whether you know, the mission is being achieved and whether it's cost effective and, and all that, you, you know, it is the responsibility of elected officials to force those types of reviews from time to time and to do so in spite of the noise that, you know, the, the bureaucrats would make, you know, this is just something that has to happen periodically. Um, and that's the, you know, okay, maybe we're operating in good faith here, uh, sort of initial position that you, that you have, but, you know, what seems to be actually unfolding is this, you know, is cutting the department down to the bone and even through, you know, cutting through bone to remove institutional capacity in a way that doesn't seem to be about, you know, cost effectiveness and, um, you know, streamlining uh, functions and, you know, delivering more bang for the buck, but rather, um, and again, really seems to be impossible to credibly believe or credibly argue that it's for any of those sort of positive, good governance function, uh, you know, uh, goals or aims, um, but rather to eliminate a body of experts that exist in that bureaucracy uh, in order to make the system into that instrument that I was describing before, that is simply used for whoever wields that instrument in, you know, the, you know, the international jungle that is defined purely by interest um, that, you know, Cohn and McMaster uh, argued for and that seems to define Bannon's worldview. And I mean, there's, there, there, in my mind, there is no other explanation for any threat to the population, refugee and migration, um, you know, desk in the State Department, for example. They're like, the, I mean, these are issues, human rights, uh, refugees, migration. I mean, these are issues where keeping a wealth of expertise available to the U.S. government and keeping people who can, you know, who are ready to interface with foreign counterparts to deal with these issues um, is, you know, keeping that capacity is crucial if what you're interested in is government capacity. You know, but if what you're interested in is stripping down the government to keep the instrument lethal and light and uh, something that can be grasped by elected, uh, you know, whoever enters the White House then takes and, and then can completely change the direction of the bureaucracy. If that's what you're interested in, then you get rid of those experts and remove their autonomy from the elected, um, 
you know, the elected office and the political appointees that then go into the bureaucracy. Um, yeah, so it's this this episode with with McCain and um, asking these questions about the process um, going into the the healthcare vote um, triggered these thoughts about the broader picture of what Trump's attempting to do and how Washington is responding. Yeah. yeah. And the specifics of when we talk about, we have to get into the specifics of some of the parliamentary things just to discuss what's happening. And we've, we've said that, you know, that's not a possession for all time because that's a very hyper-specific thing for right now. But when we're trying to illustrate a general principle about procedure that will matter the next time something comes up, you do have to look. You do have to look a little bit into those weeds so that you can at least understand. So that it's sort of like my Balrog wings example from a few weeks ago. Sometimes a vote looks like a vote for one thing, but it's really a vote for something else. And you have to be willing to get past your initial perception and really take a look at it to figure out if um, if that's uh, if if it really is what it looked like at first glance. Although one yeah. thing uh, which has been raised and it does. It is an interesting question to um, consider because this gets into more specifics of history that I'm not familiar enough with, which is that uh, when Zinke's thing came out, a lot of people were saying, well, is this really different than a lot of the arm twisting that LBJ used to do? And sure. and, and I have not read Robert Caro's books, and I, of course I understand Robert Caro has only just gotten to Johnson as president, uh, right. but... Um, it, it, it is an interesting consideration because when is normal political horse trading? When does that cross the line into extortion? Uh, yeah. And it it seems it, it's kind of it's and it's when you when you sit down you you pause and you think how would I distinguish um, normal horse trading, normal driving a hard bargain from threatening to shut shut down an agency or not, but threatening to just go after a state for purely vindictive reasons. In this particular instance, we have a situation where the Trump administration just does not have the benefit of the doubt on anything, right? which is kind of the right. problem. Um, right. When they do it, they also do it incompetently and clumsily. If you're going to make a threat <laughs> like that, it better be a threat that'll work. The right. worst thing you could do is to make a threat like that and have it just harden Murkowski's position so that right. she is a definite no. And right. that's just part of the incompetence that we've seen from this. Um, and, well, and that's, yeah, yeah and it, it goes back again to the, um, you know, the broader international worldview that they seem to have. And it is, it goes back to, fun, to, to Machiavelli that, you know, Machiavelli says, uh, you know, it's better to be feared than to be loved. But that's only if you can't be loved. The ideal is to be loved and feared. And the worst thing is to be hated. Yes. And not feared, right? So if you are hated and not feared, you're in the worst position. Basically, Trump has worked his administration into that position in the United States where even Republicans uh, hate him. And I mean, hate is a bit of an exaggeration, but for the purpose of, you know, those four positions that Machiavelli describes, that's where we are, where Murkowski, you know, has nothing to fear. And a lot to resent. And, um, you know, that's fundamentally why morals and ethics matter. Because 
you know, if you if you're clumsy and ineffective, but attempting to do a good thing, you still get a little credit. If you're clumsy and ineffective and trumpeting about how you have no interest in doing the right thing, you're only interested in doing what is good for you, what you want, then no one is going to give you any credit under any circumstances. And sorry to cut you off, but that's... Oh, no, no, that's actually a good point. And it is worth uh, remembering as well in this context that when Machiavelli said it's better to be feared than loved, people, much like uh, Clausewitz's war is politics pursued by other means, this is a, a, a line that is sometimes taken slightly out of context because what he says there is that the reason it's better to be feared than loved is because people love you at their pleasure and fear you at yours. That you can't control people loving you, but you can control them fearing you. But you want right. both. Like, you, you do want to be loved. That is that is a good thing, uh, which is exactly the point you're making here. If you have... And um, one almost wonders where respect would go in on that spectrum as well. That's possibly closer to the fear side. Uh, yeah. That you could have somebody like LBJ who could twist arms very effectively and they respect him for his ability to push these things through and LBJ's legacy is dominated by the Vietnam War which causes us not to look at the amazing legislative accomplishments that he got through that uh, that not, there's really been basically nothing since then that can go on the scale of some of what he did do in the Great Society which again we tend Except to view for the ACA. Yeah, we tend to view, to view everything that Johnson does is somewhat failed because his legacy overall is a little poor, but that's because of something unrelated to domestic policy. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think your 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 point though about um, being honest with ourselves and stepping back from this moment um, and comparing it to Johnson, who, as you rightfully point out, really was an extraordinarily successful. Um, legislator uh, as a member of the Senate or as Kara would have it as the master of the Senate. Yes. Um, you know, and then also as, as president, um, you know, getting through the civil rights acts and um, other elements of the great society. Um, and yeah, like I, I, I know that I have a tendency to do what I refer to as my church lady routine where, you know, it's like, I just get really, uh, riled up about decorum and decency uh, in ways that are like demonstrably not relevant to the way politics works in certain instances. So um, like the, the demonization of George W. Bush, for example, um, not warranted. You know, they were saying the things about Bush that a reasonable person would say now about Trump and you know, they were not true then. They were just going, you know, the critics were just dialing it to 11 right off the bat um, when, like, you know, 7 to 9 would probably have been accurate in most of those instances. Um, but, you know, whether they were accurate or not, they worked. And they that marshalling that criticism... Uh, was something that Nancy Pelosi and Rahm Emanuel did to great effect to take over, um, you know, the House and lead to, you know, lay the groundwork for 
um, Obama to come in and have that very successful first two years. Um, so, you know, so I, I acknowledge, I acknowledge my flaws, uh, in terms of being like a pragmatic, realistic, uh, you know, viewer of, of what's going on. Um, but, but again, I, as I was saying before in evaluating the, um, sort of brutal realism that the current administration articulated as its vision of international affairs. Um, you know, America has benefited tremendously from the perception that we, you know, may be an empire, but we're an empire of invitation. And we may err in our pursuit of our values, but we do have values and they matter. And um, we, we lose when we lose that goodwill. And we lose that goodwill by squandering it and by saying that we don't care about the values that we had, you know, previously claimed to care about. Soft power uh, is a thing. And yeah. we, the problem is every now and then you get into office, and this happened in George W. Bush's first term with Cheney and Rumsfeld ascendant, less so in his second term. And this is definitely happening with Trump. You get people in who have a very specific conception of power, and they don't think that soft power is power. They think that hard power is power. Right. And they don't think that there is such a thing as getting people to work along with you, which, I mean, I think history i don't i don't think bears that out i think there are plenty of circumstances where having goodwill from somebody because good just because goodwill doesn't get you everything you want doesn't mean it gets you nothing that you want right, right. and i think that that's sort of a key part uh in remembering that soft power is still useful it doesn't get you everything but then again military power doesn't get you anything everything either yeah well that's that would definitely be, I mean, we could have an entire, there, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure we there, will not an entire episode. Like I'm saying, there could be an entire podcast on, um, the history of America's view of military power as an instrument of policy. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly since, I mean, MacArthur was probably the first major uh, instance of a completely idiotic perspective that if we just take the leash off the American military, it'll solve all the problems um, that we face. And the answer is just more cowbell, you know, <laughs> just have, just have, just put it, just put a, a couple more divisions in, just launch a few more, you know, Okay, just tactical nukes. Just give me some tactical nukes, and I'll that'll be enough. Okay, well, they got to go to IC, ICBMs. It's got a, it's a, it's an idea with a fairly long pedigree in modern America, and um, yeah, so, I mean, you said all that needs to be said that uh, military power doesn't actually solve. lasting problems on its own you know military power can solve military questions military problems but not others right you want and, the military power this is something that 
we need to make very clear because the caricature on the right is that people who believe in soft power don't believe at all in military power, and that is just not right. the case. Right. Um, yeah, this actually gets me to maybe I, you know this would be like my should, maybe this should be my sign off, but I, I've been musing about um, that very topic. Uh, related to Robert Mueller. Hmm. You know, there Mueller, I guess is how he pronounces it. I mean, um, yeah. we, but, we uh, know how it would be in German. We'll just go with whatever they say in America. Yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll say Mueller then. But, you know, there's this, this sense in which um, I've been put off by the way in which Mueller's been held up as this like great American by people on the left, some of whom I do not actually believe would value his valor. His, I mean, like people who don't, people, I mean, there are actually people on the left uh, who, you know, who say Comey's like, like the intercept, Right. Right. Uh, people, you know, writers for the Intercept. I have no love they, for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I. Part of the reason I want to go through the process of you know having these conversations with you is to better understand my own views and craft my ability to speak, in order to be a voice against the kind of nihilistic, um, you know, overly overly cynical uh, leftism that that outlets like The Intercept provide a, um, a forum for. Uh, because people like them would say, you know, Comey is not your hero. Comey is a G-man. The FBI is part of the apparatus of oppression that the American government uses to such terrible effect against, you know, all sorts of people. Um, and therefore, you know, stop applauding Comey. So, you know, maybe those people would be it's like, I'm sure there are people with the courage of their convictions who, um, you know, love articles like that and would then apply the same logic to Mueller and say, you know, don't call, don't talk about how he's a war hero. Don't, you know, hope for salvation from him. But I'm also quite certain, and this is, I mean, this, this is just a sense that has been growing on in, in me in the last few weeks, that there are people who probably have, you know, browser tabs where they're reading about, um, you know how terrible the FBI is, how terrible the U.S. military is, how the U.S. military has has done nothing but ruin people's lives uh, wherever it goes. You know, and then on the other, and then in the next browser tab, they have some story about uh, how Mueller, the great American war hero, is going to take down Trump, and it just strikes me as. Um, it, it just seems like that uh, that there are people who don't have the courage of their convictions, who are willing to hold up Mueller as a as a cudgel, basically, against Trump, without thinking through what it is that Mueller represents about the greatness at the heart of what America already is, you know, people who do genuinely believe in service to their society, 
um, service in traditional forms, you know, military service, government service, but who, uh, as Mueller has, um, people who demonstrate incredible compassion for their fellow citizens. And there's, a, and there's this amazing story where this kind of all came out was reading a story about Mueller acting as a prosecutor um, where, you know, he was pulling down like, so I think this was a Daily Beast article where I saw this reported, but the story is the story is what it was. Um, that he was making a lot of money uh, on you know on Wall Street, and he decided that it wasn't enough, so he went down to D.C. and basically, you know, started as an entry level uh, homicide prosecutor. And one of the cases that he had um, was described as that you know he. Um, successfully prosecuted the murderer of a uh, single mother's daughter. So he nailed the guy and he saved the mother from spiraling into just emotional turmoil and addiction where she was, she was addicted uh, to some kind of uh, alcohol or, or, or drugs. I can't recall, but he provided such incredible emotional support to this woman and her family that they remembered him to this day as a pillar who changed their lives. And like, see, this, is, this is a great man, a genuinely great man who demonstrates everything that is good and right with what America, you know, with, with like traditional American values. Um, and the idea that he's sort of like a, a cudgel of convenience seized by people who, um, you know, like snark about those values. It just bothers me. I mean, that's, that's a pretty, I mean, that, 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 that's a good point in that it, it dovetails with what we're saying, which is uh, when you talk about people who are sort of, we view them as sort of, you know, they have a, a stick up their bum, as they say, that they're like very good about following the rules, they're very punctilious, like Comey, like Mueller. Yeah. Then you, uh, Part of the reason that that's great is because, you know, these are the people who are going to follow the procedure. And those right. are the people that you can trust because you can trust people who will follow the procedure. The people who don't follow the procedure because they don't believe in the procedure and because they believe that, you know, personal loyalty to them is everything. Those are the ones who go off and get horrible scandals. Those are your Richard Nixons, the ones right. who say the rules don't apply to me and I'm going to do something else. And then it ends up being a disaster. And you have to appoint somebody like Robert Mueller to catch those people and to bring them down. Right. Right. Or people who, um, you know, and what, we, what we seem to be, what we see with the current administration appears to be what you were just describing, which is um, people who don't believe the rules apply to them and are motivated by, pure selfishness you know that's that is clearly trump i mean that is clearly trump and the question is how many other people around him and it seems like now that the establishment republicans um who at least had a commitment to the party you know which is like one step above selfishness right like i mean the, the, the party is at least you know externally directed to to some extent so you're not solely in it for yourself if you're motivated by support for the party. He's purging those people. And now it's, you know, Scaramucci, um, you know, and, and God only knows who's going to, you know, join the administration at this point. Um, but, 
that is as bad that is bad but people who are motivated and feel that the rules don't apply to them because they're uh motivated by ideological principles you know to some extent are maybe more respectable than people who are purely in it for themselves but you know i mean i take this to to say um you know the vulcans the people who came in with george w bush the neocons who thought okay we're going to reshape the world and we have this idea for how it's going to work we've thought through it and we're going to ram it through and we don't care about the process we're going to um you know again being charitable it's like we're going to seize on flimsy evidence to convince ourselves that our ideas will work and then we will um talk about that evidence as if it is fact in order to get the people behind us right so also showing uh total disregard for process in how policy should be framed um argued promoted and decided upon in democracy um but not not quite at this at the sheer um cynical selfish level of of Trump but also wrong and you know against those people you'd also need um someone like you know the the, the Comeys and the Mullers of the world who um you know who so incredibly vividly demonstrate their commitment um to the process. That's I mean what you bring up reminds me of yet another apropos Lord of the Rings <laughs> which is when someone it might have been Gandalf uh, said that uh, Sauron was not so evil a being as Morgoth because at some point Sauron was willing to serve someone else. That it huh. wasn't it wasn't always entirely about him. Uh, that he could even view somebody else's interests as relevant to his uh, which is Sort of what you're getting at there. Uh, <laughs> I, That's fascinating. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, you know, like Lord of the Rings references uh, are great. Because, I mean, they're I think they're totally valid as part of the Western canon, shall we say? Because yeah, I mean, he was trying to create little, an English myth. That's well, and the Ring. I mean, the Ring is the Ring of Gyges. Right. It it is a direct reference to ancient Greek philosophy. So, um, I mean, in the Ring. The fact that the ring makes, um, you know, Frodo and and Bilbo invisible, right, is a direct, right. direct reference to. Right, and that. I mean just the fact also that what the ring, of course, symbolizes power, but it also symbolizes a desire to be free of consequence. That being invisible right. means you can take an action and have no consequence. Uh, and oh, so I was reminded during what you were saying there, I saw. I think it was a tweet, and I think it was by Christopher Hayes. I don't watch his show, so I don't know if that's where it came from. But uh, someone, I think it was he, was remarking that the healthcare vote, rem- vote reminded him of the authorization of military force for Iraq. Because mm. he said what's going on here is there's a sense of urgency to do something, but it's not clear why it's that urgent or what we're supposed to be doing, just a sense that we have to do a thing, and that is pushing us inexorably towards this result, even though it's not a good idea. And I mean, right. the, whole, the whole healthcare thing that we've seen so far has been, I mean, it's, it's a whole complicated issue that we can't possibly get into in the remaining five minutes of our podcast. But, <laughs> I mean, the short summary of it, and we didn't even get into things like explaining what a skinny repeal bill is and why it's so bad. But it strikes me that what has happened here... Um, with healthcare as a thing is that 
the Democrats, just the quick summary of my view on this, is the Democrats couldn't get what they wanted, which was single payer. So they put together what was the Heritage Foundation's idea in the 90s as an opposition to Hillary care. Like, that was their idea, and then Mitt Romney did it as governor of Massachusetts. And I have never really heard a satisfactory explanation from Republicans on why an idea that they were okay with became the most evil thing. The thing that they had to say was worse than slavery. The thing that justifies all of these breaks with process that was the seven-year obsession. The Occam's razor view of it is that they hated Obama. They who symbolized, and I don't, and not just because of his race, but because of the fact that, uh, you know, he said in his biography he made references to drug use and things like that. That just, in their minds, he's from Hawaii, would set off all of these, and Chicago, these these alarm bells of the crazy liberal that they hate so much. It was just this visceral yeah. hatred of him and anything that bears his name, and it just became this obsession to repeal Obamacare for so long that, you, I mean, as we learned once they, I mean, we all knew it from watching, but it became even clearer once they took over, they had no replacement idea. Yeah. They just, they didn't. All they knew was that they hated Obamacare and they really just did not have a solution when they actually had to try to yeah. come up with a solution. They kept coming up with things that were so horrible that they had to break normal process because they knew that if people saw it, it would be awful. And what did they complain about? Well, that's where, about? that's where, that's where the connection to the Iraq war debate is actually quite uh, accurate because um, you know what the basically the the push to, to approve the skinny repeal was essentially uh, saying you know we don't actually have a plan we want authorization to create a plan right you know but like yeah okay, that's well, a very good point you have, we want authorization to create a plan you've had seven years to create a plan you know you don't you don't need you know this extra authorization to just come up with the plan the plan is totally independent of that. You could have come up with a plan three years ago, four years ago, two years ago, seven years ago, in fact. But of course, as you say, because the plan that they would have come up with is Obamacare because it came out of heritage. It came out of market-based, you know, traditionally Republican-oriented ideas and, you know, and Mitt Romney. Um, It was clear that they, that they had no plan in the same way that, you know, not the same, but in an analogous way that, um, you know, with Iraq, it was, you know, we need authorization for military force. You know, we need to address this issue of the weapons of mass destruction that clearly exist. And then, you know, we're going to change this society and it'll be, it'll be so much better for everyone. But there was no plan for how to actually do that. And you to know? a certain extent, oh, would they said the authorization of military force, well, if you give us this authority, it'll help our bargaining position, which is what right. they're saying with the skinny repeal bill, too. It'll put us in a yeah. new bargaining position. Right. Uh, the skinny repeal bill also reminded me of the sequester, because to a certain extent, what they were trying to do, with, particularly when they said, well, what if we did a repeal bill that just ends it in two years? It'll force us to come up with a better solution. Yeah. With the skinny repeal bill, they said, if we get to conference, it'll force us to come up with a better position. But as we saw right. with the sequester... They just won't come up with a better position <laughs> right? because they don't yes, have one. It's the, exactly. Something that has amused me is one of the ideas that was briefly floated, and The Economist even had an article saying that this is not that bad an idea, Is and it has been tried in a few states, are high-risk pools. The idea being that you just take all the sick people, the ones who are the real reason premiums get up high, the ones who are responsible for a large chunk of the medical costs, and you take them out of the normal market, put them in this separately funded high-risk pool, and then everybody else's insurance will get 
much, much lower because you're just dealing with healthy people. And that's reasonable to a certain extent, except that the problem is they never fund the high-risk pools high enough. Right. Because you're talking yeah. about exclusively sick people who are expensive. And yeah. part of what amused me is that a high-risk pool properly done would be one that would be funded to such an extent that you're basically talking about a mini single payer. It would sort of become a, a Medicare or Medicaid for the sick. And right. you're, that, it, it, you're, once again, you're just getting back to this point where single payer starts to look like a reasonable option. And obviously right. they can't let themselves go down that route. So instead they come up with a bunch of ridiculous other bills that, I mean, they just keep doing, they just keep putting these things out because they know they have to get rid of Obamacare, but they don't know that they don't know what in the world would be better than that. Right. Because they don't have a solution because it was their solution because this has just become a thing that they're obsessed with. That That's yeah. my take on it, that they – I mean, although, it's, it's difficult. It, although – and this is – you know, don't, we're getting to the end, so we should be wrapping up rather than opening yeah. new topics. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a way in which the Republican and general conservative insistence on uh, repealing Obamacare uh, in a way to – basically dispel the sort of shadow of Obama that they, that seems to haunt them. And I agree with you that I, mean, it, I, I think it haunts them again, not exactly because he's black, although that is clearly part of it for certain parts of the demographic. Um, but that he really represents a new kind of masculinity that is so antithetical to their vision of what, um, you know, of what a man in their culture is, you know, he's, he's the, I mean, the, you have Obama and then you have Trump, right? You have a guy who is effortlessly cool and in fact, excellent. And a man who is a posturing self-important thug, you know, and, uh, people respond to Trump. People were able to convince themselves that Trump, you know, cares about other people despite, his entire life showing the opposite um, that he is, you know, hardworking, successful businessman when, uh, you know, he may or may not be hardworking, but his, you know, successful businesses are basically just, you know, conning people and cutting out on the tab. Right. Whereas on the other hand, you have um, this man who just, exudes self-restraint, understated confidence, um, discipline, outwardly directed passion to serve and bring people together, constantly calling for the best in us. I mean, to me, like, I mean, it is, it is my, um, incredible. Yeah. I'm just thrilled that essentially millennials, you know, the, the biggest cohort, um, you know, after the baby boomers came of age with Obama to imprint on as an icon of what a man can be. Um, it's, it's just, I, I sincerely hope that that will, um, have the, you know, great positive effects on American America in the future that, that you know, that I think it will. Um, but, but that's, that's, part of this, that the, the spirit of what he represents as part of the culture coming to America um, is part of this, part of what makes the, the stakes so high for 
the Republicans yeah. who wanted and to. And lest anyone listening think we're making this up because we're crazy lefties who just hate the other side. I don't know if you remember in 2012, there was possibly the worst article I've ever read in the Weekly Standard talking about how women should want to vote for Mitt Romney because he's so manly that he produces sons instead of daughters. Like, I don't know if you remember this. Did you ever did you ever see this? This was an actual you know, piece that was put in the Weekly Standard. I, I, I don't know if it was just on their online edition or if it ever made it to the print edition, but there was a thing in the Weekly Standard, and who knows if I can go look this up and have to correct this next week, but I believe it was written by a man, and it was talking about how men who produce male heirs are more manly, and Obama has only produced daughters, and he's so effeminate, and women should be drawn to Romney's masculinity, and he should be winning with the female vote. God. It was This was insane. It was insane. And this was an actual thing that was said. And we're not even talking the National Review here. We're talking the Weekly Standard. So... <laughs> right, right. That's It's insanity. And of course, I mean, again, like, I hope that anyone who's listened to this, to, to me, you know, praising Obama there, uh, that they remember what I was doing a few minutes before, you know, praising Comey and, and, and Mueller. You know, the, the, Mueller, the Mueller is the... Um, I mean, he is the repository of, I mean, truly, I believe from what I, everything I've read about him, that he is like everything that makes America great. Mm. Um, and in part, that is because he shares many of the traits that I described Obama as having. I mean, I'm, I'm consistent. And there are Republicans who have those traits, um, just not Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> it's uh, Donald. I mean, I feel that we may have to do an entire podcast at some point just on, for the future reference, the red flag characteristics that Donald Trump possesses. Because if right. you break down basically every element of his personality, except that he doesn't drink, it's right. they're pretty much all right. the red flags that you see throughout history in a ruler that you should say a person with these characteristics should not be allowed anywhere near power. Right. But that would have to be its own entirely separate podcast. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's it's difficult because we've said at the beginning we don't want to just be people who rag on Republicans, who go after Trump, who just spew vitriol. But we happen to be doing this podcast at a time when there's nothing to commend the Republican Party for. Individual Republicans, maybe, but yeah. this is a time when Donald Trump is the face of the party, and Donald yeah. Trump is a disaster. Right. So. Exactly. Not and not just the face, but the the product, the yeah. simulacrum of, of the party. Yes, excellent. All right. Well, I think that will cut our conversation for a bit here. We sort of already did our sign off uh, in the middle uh, to to that extent, and uh, I don't actually have something. I can. Oh, you you actually have another one. Oh, no, yeah, sure. Well, Give yeah, because well, we've been we were talking about Dunkirk, um, and there's an issue that uh, just to I'll climb onto the soapbox here for a second. Um, the, so part, part of what I study is uh, the independence movement in South Asia, you know, the end of the British Empire and the transition to a Muslim-dominated republic in um, Pakistan and a nominally secular uh, India. And so watching Dunkirk, uh, one of the things that was foremost in my mind as I watch this movie is the fact that there are so many white faces. And um, now 
you know, I saw the movie, I thought it was fantastic and it wasn't really something that bothered me The you know, like where the, you know, where the non-white people. Uh, and in fact, it really does. It seems like a moment where kind of the PC commitment to diversity uh, for diversity's sake, you know, give black actors, give, you know, people of color the opportunity to act uh, precisely because, uh, you know, it's not about this particular movie. It's about creating an industry that accurately, you know, resembles society. Um, you know, that's, that's an important goal, but it seems, this certainly seems like the kind of movie where it wouldn't be relevant, right? Because uh, we're talking about the British army and the French army and the German armies, although you don't really see Germans in the movie. Um, but, you know, we talk about good faith in this podcast, and I read that Christopher Nolan, when he was asked about um, whitewashing in the, in the movie, responded by saying, I was focusing on the pure mechanics of survival in the film. And so, you know, it wasn't really about politics. I didn't want to talk about these other issues. And so the, 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 that was a direct quote, pure mechanics of survival, and that he didn't want politics. He wasn't talking about politics in the movie. And to me, that exposed his lack of good faith uh, in his responsibilities as a director to deal with this historical episode. For one thing, there were South Asian service members at Dunkirk. Um, there were also South Asians who took place uh, part in the uh, evacuation of the troops. Um, he could have said, I think Nolan, you know, if Nolan had said, I reviewed the history. And when you're talking about, you know, something like 400,000 people and, you know, at most, maybe a couple thousand of them are South Asian. I didn't want to, you know, basically just have cameos that would trivialize the issues of imperialism of the time. You know, I just, I, I didn't want to do that. I, it was an agonizing decision, but I made the call that I made and that's where we are. That, is, that would have been somewhat truthful, but the fact that he, that, he, that he claimed that he was trying to, you know, avoid politics in the movie struck me as, um, as a really craven lie in part, because if you watch the movie, this is there are no spoilers here. Um, Politics and the politics of identity are everywhere in the film because you immediately, you're talking about Britain, so you're talking about class and you have high class people and low class people. It's revealed by their accents. It's revealed by um, their roles in the military. Um, it's an essential part of how the quote unquote mechanics of survival function in this desperate moment where, you know, one of the issues is, can people trust each other? How do you establish trust? You establish trust, you know, based in part on identity. Um, you also have, you know, the dynamics of, uh, you know, the allies where the French and the British are fighting together. They're fighting against the Nazis, but, you know, do they really trust each other? Who gets off the beach first? I mean, these are, these are essential issues where you cannot escape uh, from these topics and this is a, you know, a moment where I would just say um, that, you know, diversity for diversity's sake, you know, having cameos just so you have, um, 
you know, a pretense, basically tokenism uh, of diversity in the movie, you know, that's, that, that shouldn't be the answer. But at the same time, when someone like Nolan, who is as gifted and talented a director as he is, um, you know, offers such a measly and deceptive response uh, for the reason he failed to address this issue in the film. It just strikes me as, um, you know, a sign of, of how far we need to go uh, as, a, as, a, as a world, as a society, to, um, you know, overcome these historical and cultural and political blinders that prevent us from dealing with, well, from dealing with, with history, from dealing with reality, and really just from seeing what's in front of our noses. And, you know, that's part of what this podcast is about, and that's my... That's my sign-off for the day. All right. We'll see you guys next week with me just throwing in quickly that uh, I was wrong. It was the National Review that had the uh, ridiculous Mitt Romney article. Oh, uh, well, typical. typical. I, will put the link, I will put the link in the show notes to that. See you all next week.